Well, good morning, Berean. It's exciting to be back with you again to open up the word of the Lord. You know, as I was trying to think about what to preach on this morning, I, I settled on one of my favorite texts of Scripture. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1 this morning. So if you have a Bible, why don't you go ahead and start to turn there. This is a, a very special text for me because I think it's one that the Lord used to really lead my dad to salvation. Growing up, I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My dad was not a uh, believer, and yet some years ago, I had the great privilege of leading him to the Lord. Uh, at that time, my dad had been suffering with, from cancer for about six and a half years, and, and it was a long six years. He had suffered a lot. There's a, a lot of pain involved in that, a, a lot of discouragement, a lot of treatments, a lot of suffering. And so through all of that, I had a lot of opportunities to share the gospel with my dad, but he had never came to a decision to follow Christ. Um, and at the time that this all happened, we were living in Ohio. My dad was living in southeast Michigan. And, and without going into a whole lot of detail, I want to kind of peel back the curtain as to, to what happened and how the Lord worked here. But my wife and I were on our way one evening in December to go to a Christmas party for the Sunday school class that we were a part of at church. And we pulled into the parking lot and I said to my wife, I said, hey, I'm going to call my twin brother real quick. My dad had been in the hospital, just see how things are. My brother says, hey, yeah, we're here. Dad's fine. And they're saying everything's going good. And I, I got off the phone. I, I asked him, I said, do you think we should go? And he's like, no, you're, you're, you're fine. Dad will be Okay. Okay. We hung up the phone, and I turned to my wife, and I said, we're, uh, we're not going to this party. We're going to Michigan. And I think she thought I was probably a little bit nuts. And uh, it's 7 o'clock at night, and so we, uh, we drove home, got a change of clothes, grabbed the dog, threw it in the car. We drive up to uh, West Bloomfield, and uh, we got there about 11 o'clock at night, and I'm going, how are we going to get in? You know, visiting hours are way past due, and so I luckily had my little hospital pastoral visit badge in the car and showed it to them at the counter, and, and they let me in. Uh, I guess there are some privileges to pastoring. Uh, so we, we would go up to my dad's room, and the whole time I, we were driving up, I was trying to think, like, what can I share with my dad that I've never shared with him before, that, that, that the Lord might use in his heart. And I settled on this text because my dad was a fisherman. He loved fishing, uh, loved going out, seeing the sunrise, loved the stillness of the water, just the, the calm of, of creation. And so I read this text we're going to look at this morning to my dad, and we talked about how Jesus created all of the lakes, and he created those beautiful sunrises that my dad likes to watch, and he created all of, all of the fish, and, and we continue to read, and we came to a phrase we're going to look at this morning that says, Jesus holds all things together. And I remember turning to my dad and looking at him and saying, Pops, I, I believe that Jesus has sustained you these past six years so that you might have an opportunity to come to him in repentance and place your faith and trust in him. And then I walked my dad through Romans Road and shared the gospel with him. And, and I wish I could say to you that he accepted the gospel right then and there, but, but he did not. Um, the next evening, we were watching a football game 
And uh, out of the blue, my dad said something spiritual, and I was on that like white on rice and shared the gospel to him again, and, uh, and this time he responded. The Spirit worked in his heart, and he confessed that he believed Christ had died on the cross and rose again to pay for the penalty of his sins, and he proclaimed his trust in his salvation. And it was just a sweet, sweet moment. Ten years of prayers uh, answered. It was so joyous to me. I think we left the hospital in tears, and, uh, and the next morning, my dad went to be with Jesus. Uh, but my dad had the opportunity to respond to the question that is in our text this morning. And that question is, who is Jesus? As Jesus himself says in the Gospels, who do you say that I am? On the basis of our answer to that question rides our eternal destiny. And so it's a question that's far too important for any of us to just kind of brush under the rug. It's a question that demands intense exploration, and it demands a response from each and every one of us. And as we dig into the book of Colossians this morning, we're going to see that question answered for us. Uh, We're going to see in this passage that Christ is God that he is creator, that he is sustainer, that he's Lord and that he is savior. And everything was made by him and for him and every person and everything exists for his glory. You don't exist for yourself, right? You don't exist for your own pleasure. You exist for Christ. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that means that if Christ is your Lord and Savior, you will live for him. You'll do everything for his glory because he alone is worthy of your affection. We're going to get a glimpse of that marvelous glory this morning in the text. And we're going to see that Christ is supreme, that he is before, and that he is above all things. So if you have a Bible... Turn with me to Colossians. We're going to look at verses 15 to 17 this morning. But I want to read verses 15 to 20 because it's kind of a a group unit. This is probably the most vivid picture that we get of Christ in the entire New Testament. It's just a glorious passage full of truths about our Savior. Let's read, beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Amen. There is a lot packed in that section. This is probably the most Christ-centered, theologically loaded text about Jesus in the entire New Testament. In these six verses, 
Paul makes 13 statements about Christ. And so that can be a little confusing. It can kind of be a little overwhelming. And so to kick us off, I kind of want to give you a little roadmap to follow to help us break those statements down and make sense of them. You're going to notice as we read this that the structure and the language used in these verses is not typical Paul. You know, Paul is known for these really long run-on sentences with clause after clause after clause. But here we have a bunch of short, choppy statements. And a lot of scholars think that's because Paul is taking a hymn here, a hymn of the early church, and modifying it for his purposes. And just like our hymns today, uh, scholars believe that this hymn had a couple of different stanzas. There's some discussion about whether there's two stanzas or three stanzas. I probably technically think there's three stanzas, but we're going to go with two this morning just because that's a little bit easier to track and to follow along. These two stanzas are identifiable because they have a lot of parallelism between them. Both stanzas begin with the phrase, he is, and then immediately following, they have the phrase, the firstborn. So he is and the firstborn. And so you'll notice that the first hymn begins in verse 15, goes through verse 17, and then the second stanza is verses 18 to 20. And both of them are also similar because they contain a description of who Jesus is, and then they follow it with the discussion of what did he do or what does he do. So those are the two questions we're going to ask this morning as we work our way through this text. Who is Jesus and what did or what does Jesus do? And if you look with me at verse 15 here, it answers that first question by identifying two things that are true of Jesus. First thing is that he is the image of the invisible God. And second, he is the firstborn of all creation. Those are are both very brief, yet very powerful and loaded statements about the person of Christ. And so I want to take a few minutes and unpack them a little bit, help you understand all the richness that is in those two short statements. Uh, The first thing I want to ask is, what does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? God. What does it mean that Jesus is the image of the invisible God? Uh, First, let me start off by saying that scripture is consistent both in the Old Testament and the New Testament to teach us that God is invisible. Here's some uh, relevant text for you. First Timothy chapter one, verse 17 says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Men. Uh, John 4.24 says God is spirit. First uh, John 4.12 says no one has ever seen God. Uh, we have a four-year-old daughter at home, and she is constantly asking me about God's body. Uh, does God have arms? Does he have legs? Does he jump? You know, all those kind of things. And so I have to discuss with her, no, God is a spirit being. It's a very complicated thing to teach your four-year-old. Um, but God, it's true nonetheless, right? So uh, God is a spirit. The last text I want to point out to you is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. It says, then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of the words, but you saw no form, only a 
voice. Now, there are some instances in the Old Testament where you will read about men being face-to-face with God. Think about Genesis 32, where uh, Jacob wrestles with God, right? It describes him as being face-to-face with him. What does that mean? It it does not mean that he actually looked God in the eye. It's a figure of speech to describe him as being intimately close, having an intimately close fellowship with God. God. I, I think the best textual example of this comes from the book of Exodus in chapter 33. It says, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. But then a few sentences later, God is actually talking to Moses and he says to him, But you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and Live. So no one has ever seen God because he is invisible. But our text this morning tells us that if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The word here used for image is an interesting one. Our English word icon is derived from this same word. If you take out your, your phone and you look on the background, what's it full of? All kinds of icons, right? What does an icon do? It represents the app uh, as a small picture of it, right? And that's part of the idea behind this word image. Jesus represents God to us. But it's also a little bit deeper than that. It carries with it two other ideas. The ideas of likeness and manifestation. Likeness and manifestation. I want to talk about those very briefly. Christ is the exact likeness of God. What that means is that his nature is identical to God. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So this word carries with it the idea of likeness. It also carries with it the idea of manifestation. Uh, He is the exact manifestation of God in that he reflects and he reveals God to the world. Uh, John 14 Verse 9, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The idea of, of reflecting, revealing, right? And then John 1.18 goes a little bit further. It says, no one has ever seen God, picking up that idea of, of God being invisible, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Son has made him Known. So that's another aspect of the image of God, that he reveals God to us. One of the reasons that Jesus came to, to earth is to do exactly that, to reveal the Father to mankind, right? As the image of the invisible God, he shows us what God is like. He makes the invisible visible. That, that verse from Hebrews reminds us that he reveals to us what the glory of God looks like. It's really a, a very neat idea, but it has a lot of implications. What that means is that if you want to know God, you have to know his son, Jesus. You cannot know God without first coming to a relationship in, in faith in Christ, right? The, the Bible tells us that you can know about God, right? Uh, just by observing creation. He, he's given evidence of himself and his existence uh, through creation, but that knowledge cannot save you. It can't even form the basis of a relationship with him. All that knowledge is good for is condemnation. 
nation. So if you want to have a relationship with God, you have to come to faith in Christ. He is the one, this text told us, who has reconciled us to the Father. He has paved the way back to God for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. What a marvelous truth that is. Uh, And it's interesting, you get a small phrase like that, and you can unpack so many deep, glorious truths from it. I just love the word. Um, The second thing I want to to bring out here that we learn about Jesus is that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn is probably not a term that you're super familiar with, right? You you may use it to talk about your your oldest child, but our our culture, you're probably just going to say, hey, this is my oldest kid, not, hey, meet my firstborn son, right? Just kind of awkward. Um, so we don't have a great concept for this word firstborn, and that can make this text kind of confusing. The confusion's also compounded by the fact that our translations do quite different things with this phrase. If you have an ESV or a New American Standard Bible, your Bible's going to translate this text as firstborn of all creation. Uh, if you have a New King James, it says firstborn of every creature. And then the NIV and the KJ, New King James Version say firstborn over all creation. I actually like the NIV translation the best here because I think it most clearly makes a distinction between Christ and the creation, right? He's over all creation. He is not creation. That's a distinction we have to maintain. There's been a lot of people and a lot of cults that have misunderstood this verse over the years to say that Christ was the first thing that God created. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Christ was not a created thing, right? He just told us he's the image of the invisible God. He, he is God himself, right? He's existed since before the foundation of the world. He's, we'll learn later, he's the creator. He's not the, the creation, and the context makes that very, very clear here. So if Paul doesn't mean that Christ is a created being, what does he mean when he says that he's the firstborn over all or of all creation? We've got to turn to the Old Testament to kind of get an answer to that question. But I think to be firstborn means to be first in rank, first in power, or first in honor. Commonly used title in the Old Testament. You might be familiar with Psalm 89, verse 27, where the Lord speaks of David, and he says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth the highest of the kings of the earth. In Exodus 4.22, God says, in referencing Israel, he calls them my firstborn son, in the sense that the Israelites are his covenant people. They're called out among the nations to be kind of first in rank and first in importance to God. And so when Paul picks up this phrase, that's kind of the, the meaning that he has in mind in talking about Christ. He means that Christ is supreme over all creation and over every creature. He has all power and he has all authority over everything that exists. And so to bring all that in and to answer our first question, who is Jesus? We've learned that he's the full revelation, right, of God to man. He's the image of the invisible God. He is God himself. He's the firstborn over all creation. That means he's the king of all things. He's supreme over everything. What, what marvelous truth. But, but Paul doesn't leave us hanging there. He goes on and he explains why Christ is supreme over all things in verse 16. Look 
with me there at verse 16. He says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is supreme over all creation because he is the creator. Nothing exists outside of his power. And in these verses, his supremacy over creation is demonstrated uh, by Paul pointing out three ways that Christ is related to creation. Three phrases here. All of them use prepositions to describe his relationship to creation. First, the text says, for by him all things were created. And then it concludes with those two other similar statements. All things have been created through him and all things have been created for him. You probably picked up on the three prepositional phrases, right? By him, through him, and for him. All of those represent Christ's uh, different roles in the process of creation. It's not a perfect analogy, but I think it might be helpful to think about those roles in relation to a construction project, right? So if you're going to go and you're going to go build a new house, you've got a concept in your brain of what that house is going to look like. First stop is going to be at the architect's office. The architect is going to take your vision and he's going to put it to paper and bring it to life, right? And then the architect is going to turn those plans over to the builder. The builder's actually going to execute those plans, always executing the plans in reference to uh, the plans that the architect drew. And if he wants to make changes, let's say you want to open up your kitchen, you got to put a header in. Well, you can't do that without making changes, talking to the architect. Everything is done in reference to the architect as he's building. And then when he's done building, what happens? He turns it over to the owner for enjoyment. And I think this text pictures Jesus taking on all three of those roles. He's the architect, he's the builder, and he's the owner of the universe. All things have been made by him, through him, and for him. Now, if you're anything like me, you read the phrases by and through, and you go, what's the difference? right? By and through sound very similar to me. Uh, I think in order to try to understand that, it's helpful to think of that phrase, by him. Overwhelmingly, across the New Testament, the word by is translated as in, typically. And I think it might be helpful to think of it in that sense here, Um, meaning that Christ is the one in whom all things were created. In other words, it means that everything that was created took place in terms of or in reference to Christ. Christ is then the originator, the architect of creation. All things in every place of every sort and of every rank originated with him. The the entire universe has been mediated through God the Son. That's the idea of by him. Then if you move over to through him, that's exactly what it sounds like, right? Christ is the agent through which this creation took place. Everything exists and owes its existence to Christ. And Paul goes on and he provides examples of all those things that were made through Christ. And he does so to kind of demonstrate Christ's supremacy. Notice here he says, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There's some parallelism going on there, right? Heaven is to invisible as earth is to 
visible. So everything that you can see, everything that you can touch, whether it's mountains or fish or the person sitting next to you in the pew or oceans or deserts, all of us have been created by Jesus. But more than that, there are things that you cannot see with your own eyes that have been made by Christ. Which is, which is a, such a neat thing. He uses the ter- the, these four kind of titles here, for lack of a better term, to really describe those invisible things that you and I can't see. He says thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All four of those terms are used in Scripture to describe unseen spiritual forces. You might think uh, angels, whether fallen or unfallen, right? That might not even be a word, but uh, good angels, bad angels, right? Paul is probably addressing the angel situation because here in Colossae, he's writing and he's addressing something called uh, the Colossian heresy. There was a lot of false teaching going on in the city of Colossae at the time, and they were teaching things like, hey, you should worship angels either instead of or in addition to Christ. And Paul writes to them and basically says, why would you want to worship something that's created when you can worship its creator? Right? So he's getting to the heart of some false teaching by throwing this in here. Uh, but, but ultimately, his main point is that everything, whether you can see it or not, owes its existence to Jesus. Things that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all these spiritual forces, everything owes its existence to Jesus and has been made for Jesus. What a, a marvelous truth. Uh, I love this idea of all things also being made for him. It's the final one of the three statements about Christ's relationship to creation. Not only is he the originator of creation and the agent of creation, he is also the goal of creation. Everything that Christ made exists for his glory. And as the goal of creation, we're moving towards a day when the created universe will glorify Christ. The New Testament speaks about this all over the place. Here's a couple examples for you. Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 10. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Another similar idea comes from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Everything will be brought together under the authority of Christ because everything exists for him. There's a lot of implications to a truth that is that big, right? Uh, everything was made for Christ and for his glory. That means that every one of us that's sitting here this morning and every human everywhere was made to glorify Christ. Whether you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior or not, your chief and the reason that you exist is to glorify him. Unfortunately, a lot of us have been sold this bill of goods and services that we are the center of our faith, right? That we are the center of our Christianity. And Christianity has become more about the creature rather than about the creator. If you're the center, though, of your version of Christianity, you are not believing a biblical gospel, 
Theologian Michael Horton describes this tendency in his book, Christless Christianity, the alternative gospel of the American church. He writes, there is a tendency to make God a supporting character in our own life movie, rather than to be rewritten as new characters in God's drama of redemption. If you were to tell someone the story of your life, what role does God have? Is he some minor character that comes out in the third and the fourth act, and when he walks off stage, everybody forgets that he was ever there? Or is he the main character, and you are just the supporting cast? Would your life story look any different if Christ wasn't in it, other than maybe coming to church on Sunday? Would it be largely the same if he wasn't in it? Or would it be drastically different? See, God is calling us to live not for ourselves, but for his glory. We exist to make much of Christ and to make him known throughout the world. And if there's one thing that I want you to walk out of here this morning, it's this, that you and I exist for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 tells us that no matter what we do, we should do everything, conduct all of our life to the glory of God. But I understand that glorifying God, especially if you're a fairly new believer, can be a somewhat abstract idea, right? What does that actually mean? What, are, what do I do in my life to glorify God? I think simply a phrase that's been helpful for me over the years is to think of glorifying God as making much of him making much of him in everything that I do. And there's a lot of different ways that the Bible describes glorifying God. Luckily for us, there's, there's a lot of practical tips. I'm going to go through 10 real quick biblical examples of ways that you can glorify God in your everyday life. The first is give God verbal declarations of praise, right? We did that this morning when we sang together as a body. We can live a life of noticeable devotion to the outside world. Three, we can bear fruit and obey God. We talked about the importance of obeying God uh, as a part of our relationship with him when we dove into 1 John a couple of weeks ago. Number four, we can declare the truth about Jesus, sharing the gospel with other people, right? Five, live, love your life less than you love God. I, I think this is one that a lot of us struggle with, right? I like to think about me, right? I'm, everybody's just inherently selfish, do I love God more than I love my own life? Number six, live a life of generosity. Seven, you can use your gifts in God's strength. Every one of us has been given a spiritual gift, and God is glorified when we use that to build up the body of Christ. Eight, live a life of gratitude. Out of uh, a joyful heart of what God has given to you, give to other people, right? Uh, this one's probably my favorite on the list, extend grace to sinners. We can create a redemptive ministry and model the gospel when we extend the grace of Christ to people who come in repentance uh, because of their sin. Number 10, be a part of a local church. Get involved in the body. Use your gifts. Encourage other people. That is glorifying to God. So if you're a Christian this morning, those are 10 ways that you can glorify God on a daily basis. But if you've never come to the point in your life where, where you've submitted your life to Jesus as your Lord, you have a much shorter and luckily a much more memorable list here. Uh, you can either glorify him by repenting of your sin and confessing him as Lord and Savior, or you will glorify him in judgment. 
when you receive the righteous punishment for your sin in hell. The issue here is not, will you glorify Christ? The issue is not, will you glorify Christ? The issue is, how will you glorify Christ? Either in salvation and a life that lives for him, or in judgment. And your answer to that question that we open up with, who do you say I am, determines how you will glorify him. So you have a choice to make. Those are the only options. It's not a confusing question, right? You can either glorify him in judgment or you can glorify him in salvation. And if you've never accepted Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for your sins, would you do that this morning? You can turn to him in repentance and faith and he will forgive you and adopt you into his family. We can't work our way into his favor, right? But we can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth that is. If you've never done that, I would encourage you to just submit your life to him this morning. You were created for him, and he is most glorified when you find your satisfaction in him. Let me tell you this. He is worth following. He is worth following because he is God. He is righteous. He is loving. He is merciful. Everything was made by him and for him and through him, right? But more than that, this text goes on and it shares with us a couple more glorious truths about who Jesus is. Look with me again at verse 17. Paul's Paul's going to answer these same two questions again for us. Of who is Jesus and what did or what does Jesus do? He writes, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So who is Jesus? He's before all things. This phrase points back to his relationship with creation. Essentially, it means that he was pre-existent, that he's existed eternally. You might recall Jesus teaching this truth to the Jews in John chapter 8, verse 58. He tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. There's, there's two truths packed into that very simple statement. The first is that Jesus was pre-existent, Right? Before Abraham was, I am. But if he just wanted to communicate the fact that he was preexistent, he could have said before Abraham was, I was. But he doesn't, right? He says before Abraham was, I am. He refers to himself as Yahweh, the covenant God, the eternal God. Jesus is claiming not only to be preexistent, but to also have eternality of being. And both of those traits are traits that only God exists possesses. It's such a powerful statement. He's claiming that he's the pre-existent eternal God, the creator of the universe. But not only is he the creator, this text closes by telling us that he's holding all things together. This is one of the current um, roles of Christ. Simply put, not only is Christ the creator, but he's also the sustainer. Without him, nothing would exist, right? The universe would literally fall apart. Job speaks to this. He says, if it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. You understand the power and the authority that is packed into that statement? If he withdrew his spirit, all of us would instantly perish? You and I are alive only because of 
Christ and his sustenance for our lives. You see, without Jesus, electrons don't orbit, gravity doesn't hold things to the ground, planets don't circle, cells don't reproduce, the sun doesn't shine, rain doesn't fall from the sky, our hearts don't beat, right? The universe literally falls apart without Jesus. And if there's such profound implications for the universe because of Jesus, we have to understand that there's profound implications for our lives as well, right? Why do I think that I can go through life and do things on the power of my own strength, under my own self-sufficiency, right? I can't. I have to recognize that I am totally and utterly dependent upon Jesus. Without him, I'm just one walking disaster area, right? If you're a Christian this morning, I want you to think about this. We've all gone through dry seasons, right? What happens in our lives when we are not drawing close to Christ, right? When we aren't being and walking in dependence on him, right? Our spiritual life begins to weaken, right? Uh, you know, it, it begins to, to crumble, to fall apart. I, I've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. When Christ isn't the center of your marriage or your home, your career ambitions or your relationships and your decision-making, what do those things resemble? They begin to resemble the world rather than Christ. And what does the world do to those things? The world causes them to fall apart. So we have an option. We can either go the way of the world that causes us to fall apart, or we can go the way of Christ where we're sustained. The world offers us nothing but death. What does Christ offer us? Abundant life and eternal life, right? So all of us ha have a choice to make this morning, right? What are we going to do? Does Christ direct our choices? Have we submitted our lives to him? Does he receive our affections? Do, 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 is, does he glory? Does he receive glory because we are living for him? Or are we going the way of the world? It's a question that we've all got to answer. And if we, the, the glorious truth is that if we commit to glorifying Christ, if that's the chief end of our life, if we make it the purpose of our life, Jesus is going to give us not just a life. He's going to give us an abundant life. What a, a glorious promise that is. He's going to change your life, right? He's going to change your thinking. He's going to change your actions. He's going to change your attitude. He's going to change your desires. Not for your own benefit, right? But for his glory. So the ball's in our court this morning. Are you going to be all about you? Or are you going to be all about Christ? Those are really the only two options. You can live for yourself or you can live for the one who created you, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, and who made you for his glory. One of my favorite sermons is by Pastor S.M. Lockridge. And he beautifully, I think, sums this up in a description of Christ. I want to read to you a few lines from this sermon. You'll recognize it. He says, the Bible says, my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's internally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? 
That's the question we have to answer. The text has laid out for us who Jesus is, and it encourages us by sharing with us all that he has done and is doing for us. So how are we going to respond? Do we know him as our Lord and our Savior and our Creator and our Sustainer? Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it cuts to our hearts. We're thankful for these marvelous truths about Jesus Christ. We are thankful that he not only created all things, but that he sustains all things. We're thankful that he accomplished salvation on our behalf. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has never come to you in repentance and faith, uh, that they might do so this morning. Lord, uh, we are so thankful that we don't have to, to suffer living our lives for ourselves, but that we can have abundant life, an abundant life in you. Lord, I pray that that is true for each and every one of us this week. May we go seeking by the power of the Spirit to be transformed more into your likeness. Amen.